Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. Please rise with me for the reading of God's word. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me as we begin. Lord, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. My name is Eugene, and uh, I'm the lead pastor here at the Church Gathered and Scattered. I'm so happy so many of you can join us today to visit, but also because most likely your friends goaded you into coming, coerced you in some way, and to your friends, I am very grateful. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. Um, But today, we want to talk about and listen to what greater love is, and Our elder Jubin read the passage about Jesus saying there's no greater love than this, that someone would lay down their lives for their friends. And so what is this greater love? And I thought it'd be good to explore it today. Dave Simmons wrote a book, and in his book he recollects about how he started a family motto. And if you don't know what a family motto is, a lot of families here, even in the United States, uh, they have a family motto for the year. Um, Just in case, uh, no, not just in case, just so you know, my family motto between my wife and I is to love God and to love others. So that's our family motto. So Dave Simmons also had a family motto that he wanted to grow in and teach his children, but their family to follow. And his family motto that year was love is sacrifice. Love is sacrifice. So as he started this love is sacrifice family motto, he saw how when he started it, he would be eating steak and he loved steak. And as he was eating steak and he was cutting it up, his wife would come over, reach over the table and with her fork, grab a piece of steak and take it from him, put it in her mouth and say, love is sacrifice. And I was thinking about that. If my wife did that and took away my protein, no, I'm just kidding. I, w- I would be very happy to be like, oh, yes, love is sacrifice. But at one point, uh, Dave took his two kids, Helen, who was eight, and Brandon, who was five, uh, to go to run some errands. And they were going into Sears. He was going to Sears. And it just so happened in that mall, they had a petting zoo opened. And in that petting zoo, um, what they would do is they would temporarily construct something like a playground and they would have very like lots of little furry cuddly animals for people to come and see and this was a long time ago but uh, once he got to Sears and to the mall 
both Helen and Brendan were both screaming, please, Daddy, Daddy, we really want to go to the petting zoo. So it was where you can kind of drop off your kids, like babysitting. So he thought it would be a good idea. So he handed them both one quarter each. Like I said, this is a long time ago, so a quarter each. And then he proceeded to go into Sears. And as he was walking to Sears, he saw that Helen didn't go into the petting zoo, but she was following behind him. And he was kind of touched. He's like, oh, she wants to spend time with her daddy. But when he examined her a little more closely, her eyes were kind of welled up, and she didn't seem so happy. So he turned around. He's like, oh, it was a mistake. I was wrong. Helen, what's wrong? And when he turned around and he asked her, she said that the petting zoo actually cost 50 cents. So she gave Brandon her quarter. And then he said, why did you do that? And he said, because love is sacrifice. And so he was so touched by that, he ran the errands uh, with Helen by her side at Sears. He went back to the petting zoo, and both he and Helen stood by the fence watching Brandon have all this fun petting the animals. And he wrote in his book that he had 50 cents just burning a hole in his pocket but he knew it wasn't the right time to give it because this was an important moment for their family to experience. And she knew this very basic concept that love is sacrifice, but love is sacrificial action. Love is sacrificial action. Love pays a price. Love costs something. Love is expensive. Love is something that you can put into another person's account so that account is accrued and that person feels that love. And love is for you. And she had to know what sacrifice was. But Helen learned by watching her parents live out that family motto. And when Jesus talks about greater love, the question should be, what does he mean by that and how did he show us? What does he mean by that and how did he show us? Before we go to that question, I think we should ask, who did Jesus love? Who did Jesus love? And who was he talking to? At this moment in time when he was, when he was seated around the dinner table, who was he talking to? He was talking to the 12 disciples. And who were the 12 disciples? And many of us know some of them, maybe not all of them, but Peter was one. Peter was someone who was given into violence. He's the one that when they tried to take Jesus away, he immediately took out his sword and cut off the high priest servant's ear. And um, he was also a fisherman from Galilee, a place where a lot of people thought no good could ever come out. When Galileans spoke, they spoke with a thick, thick accent that no one could really uh, understand. And so a lot of uh, Judean, which was the southern part of Israel, a lot of Judean humor was based around making fun of Galileans because they spoke so funny. And uh, every time I think about the Galileans, I do think about me and where I grew up and probably most or many of you. I grew up in Queens, um, New York. And then when I was in a mission trip, uh, we were just talking about foods that we liked. And so we really wanted to eat some good food. And 
I was like, oh, Eugene, what do you like to eat? And I was like, you know, I really like to eat gyros. And they all started laughing. I was like, oh, I'm Eugene, I eat a gyro. And I was like, well, I don't get it. I honestly didn't get it. And they were just laughing it up at the table. And I didn't get it. It's like, hey, I'm Eugene, I eat hot dogs, I drink coffee, and I eat a gyro, right? And I was like, uh, it's not called a gyro? It's like, no, it's called gyro. The G is silent. I was like, yeah, I'm from Minnesota, and I like to play hockey then. And then so I made fun of them, um, you know, just to kind of rib on them back. But it was, it's, it's a time where people can just easily make fun of someone, and Peter was from there. And there's John and James, who were also fishermen, who were also from Galilee, but they were notably rich or wealthier because their father Zebedee even had servants. Uh, there was Andrew, the brother of Peter, but he was a disciple of someone else. He was the disciple of John the Baptist, even before Peter, so he had loyalty to someone else before. There was Bartholomew or Nathaniel, and then when Jesus saw him, he said, behold, an Israelite, where there is no deceit. And by that, he was saying, there's a true Israelite, both inside and out. And a lot of scholars believe Nathaniel had royal blood in him, or royal ancestry. Here's where it starts really getting different. Matthew or Levi was a tax collector. Tax collector, tax collectors are big government sympathizers and they preyed on their own people by collecting tax for the Roman government. And mind you, the people in Israel believed tax should only go to God. The offering time was the most important time for them and paying taxes was garbage because to God they only deserved, uh, God only deserved their loyalty and their money. So the Israelites had this really, um, I would say, conservative belief that taxes were kind of bad. But a tax collector, that's the worst of the worst. That's someone who sold their soul for money. And they would collect taxes from their own people to give it to the enemy. And Matthew was a tax collector. There were uh, at least one zealot, uh, there, there probably was two, but Simon was called Simon the Zealot, and zealots were right-wing extremists. And if you saw what zealots did, there was a range of what they did, but a lot of times there would be things like assassinations, um, they would just hide in the shadows, and when they saw a Roman soldier go by, they would duck out, go into the blend, blend into the crowd, and they would kill them, they would stab them, and then they would try to disappear back. And so these zealots were extremists. And so when Jesus called these people, when Jesus called these disciples, it wasn't just one group of people. Like, hey, there's a nice group of people here in this place. I'll just get these 12. When Jesus called the 12 disciples, there, there were a range of political views. And that group was vast in not just how they thought, but where they were located. Their range in socioeconomic status was vast. Their accents were different. And you would not think to put this group together. But Jesus did. But Jesus did. Who did Jesus love is an important question because we know that Jesus called, just as he called the disciples, we know that Jesus called the church. And just as Jesus loves the disciples, we know that Jesus loves the church. The church is not a social club. 
The church is not a social club. It's not a gathering of people of natural affinities, likes, and hobbies. It's not about getting together with people with similar lifestyles or even life stages. The, the church is not a social club. So what is it? When was the church established? And if you went to church, maybe you would think Acts. But no. Jesus first mentions the church when he asks Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter responds, you are the Messiah, the one that we have been waiting for, the Savior. And Jesus immediately says, upon this rock, that is Jesus, he will build his church. He will build his church on people who believe in his name, that believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And people who confess that he is. But Jesus just doesn't stop there. If you continue to read in the book of Matthew, mind you, the tax collector who wrote the first of our gospels, Jesus then gives his church authority and the right to speak with authority. The church would hold the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever it bound or loosed on earth, it would be bound or loosed in heaven. He was talking about the church. He wasn't talking about one person or two people or one especially anointed pastor. He was talking about the church. That is a royal charge and a royal commission. The church is not a social club, it's an embassy. It's an embassy that will proclaim his gracious kingship and it will be the maker of disciples of all nations. Jesus is the one that chartered it, he constituted it, and he commissioned it. Meaning he's the one that started it, filled it, and sent out. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 says that it is through the church that God's manifold wisdom is made known to the universe. In Ephesians 3.10 it says, it's through the church that God's manifold wisdom is made known to the universe. That's why the church is an embassy of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The church is no small thing. And the church is something that Jesus established and loves even today. How did Jesus love? So we go on to this question finally. How did Jesus love? In the start of today's passage, Jesus is actually repeating the command, love one another as I have loved you. This is a new commandment that he stated in chapter 13. In chapter 13 he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Can you look to the person to the left and right of you? Just look, just look at their faces, gaze into their eyes, maybe even in the front of you and behind you. Just look at them. <clears throat> They're good looking, some of them. All right, just focus on the good looking ones then. No. Um, he is saying, that the way the world will know that this church belongs to Christ is that you love one another just as he loved us. But there's something to know. Right before he gives this new command, 
there is a story or a plot right before and we see that everybody then knows it's Judas Iscariot who will betray Jesus. He knows it. In fact, he knew it from the very beginning. And yet, he still says, love one another as I have loved you, knowing from the very beginning that Judas will betray him. Jesus still poured out all of his love to all of his disciples, even Judas Iscariot. Romans 5, 7, 8 says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were enemies of God, still sinners, blind to the truth, stubborn in our ways. And even then, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. He calls them friends, even though one would betray him right in front of his face and cause him to be murdered. Another one would deny him three times to the point where he called down curses on himself, say, no, I don't know who this Jesus is. And others would run away in his biggest time of need. Knowing this, Jesus even still says, greater love has no one than this, than someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus would call his disciples friends. Knowing this, Jesus took the cross. He walked down the Via Dolorosa and he was crucified. Knowing this, he died so that we would have life. And not just any life, life to the full. And he says this to his disciples, you are my friends if you do what I command you. He commands us now to love one another as he loved us. This is no small task that we have been given as the church. This is the great commandment that the Lord has given us. Doesn't mean it will be easy, but it does mean that we now have the authority and power to go out as ambassadors to love one another. In the beginning, I shared a story about sacrificial love, and there is power in sacrificial love. Jesus showed us first but we are to take on that baton and continue running. It may entail some suffering. In fact, I think it does entail a lot of suffering. But the promise that we have been given is that he will be there with us. He is the source of joy, the fullness of life, and finally, a true and complete Peace. We can look to other places, but the reason why we stopped here is because this is where we see the source of joy, the fullness of life, and complete peace. There is um, there's a story that Ernest Gordon tells, and he writes in The Miracle on the River Kwai, some of you may know, um, Scottish soldiers were forced by their Japanese captors to build a railroad in the jungle. And I thought this story was so beautifully depicted in the movie To End All Wars. To End All Wars is a movie that came out in the early 2000s and it was directed by David Cunningham, 
who happens to be the son of Lauren Cunningham, the founder of YWAM. But um, Kiefer Sutherland uh, and some other, I, I think like half the cast of Braveheart was there, but uh, there, was, there was a lot of uh, good actors there. But this was based on this true story. And the Scottish soldiers, soldiers when they were forced by their Japanese captors to build their the jungle railroad, um, that camp, that labor camp, was nasty. It degenerated into barbaric behavior. And then something's changed, something happened. A shovel was missing. And the officer in charge became enraged. You can imagine the, uh, the Japanese officer yelling at the top of his lungs, and then he's like, their shovel is missing. And the officer would become enraged and he demanded, he stood up all the labor camp uh, prisoners and he threatened to shoot every single one unless the shovel was produced. And they knew that the officer meant what he said because of how they lived and the conditions that they were facing. And that moment became tense. And people started to look at each other. Who took the shovel? And right before the officer decided to kill all of them, Finally, one man stepped forward. This is when the officer put away his gun, picked up a shovel, and he beat the man to death. When it was over, the survivors picked up the body and they had to continue to move forward from checkpoint to checkpoint. And this time, they went to the second checkpoint, carrying the corpse that was beaten to death by the shovel. And in the second checkpoint, the shovel wasn't missing. There was a miscount. Word of this spread like wildfire in the whole camp. An innocent man was willing to die to save others. It had this incredibly profound effect on this camp. And the, all the men, all the men started to treat each other like brothers. Soon, the allies won the war and they swept in. And the survivors of this camp, when the Allied soldiers came, would stand, and you could see the survivors of the camp, they're barely alive, they're skeletons, they're just nothing but skin and bones, but they stood in front of their captors, and they insisted, they held signs saying, no more hatred, no more killing, now what we need is forgiveness. There is power in sacrificial love. The power of the kingdom of heaven is here. The spirit to work within us to love one another as God, Jesus, loved us so that we can be united just as the Father and Son were united. You know, that's what Jesus prayed. He could have prayed for anything. He could have said, I pray that they would have power when they walk. I pray that they would be successful and they just explode in number. I pray that they would always have a feel-good kind of time whenever they gather. When Jesus prayed for the church, he prays, may they be united just as you and I, meaning the Father and the Son, are united. The Father and Son are united in complete love. And this is what Jesus desires the church to be united in.
I'm going to ask now, who is it that you need to extend an olive branch to? Who is it that you need to extend the hand of forgiveness and maybe even a loving embrace? May the Spirit of the Lord guide your hearts in this very moment so that you can obey this amazing and great commandment of the Lord Jesus Christ to love one another as I have loved you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time and we thank you that you've given us not just powerful words, but your words were words of action and they were lived out and shown to us. We as well would like and we desire to live as you lived in complete fullness of joy and satisfaction in you, O oh God. So Lord, guide our hearts as we examine ourselves. May your Holy Spirit move in each and every single one of those that are sitting here in this place in your presence. Let's take this time to pray. And I do ask that you will let the Spirit guide you and ask the Lord, who is it that I need to extend a hand of love to so that I can love as Jesus commanded me to? Let's pray. And Father, we ask that you would be with your people today. I pray that even now, as we work these things in our hearts, joy would start filling our hearts where it was missing before. Every compartment, every crevice, every corner of our hearts, Lord, you can see. And Lord, it is your desire that we have life and life to the full. So Lord, won't you be with us as we draw near to you, draw near to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.